The Education of Little Tree by Forrest Carter. Chapter 13, A Dangerous Adventure. Indian violets come first in the mountain's springtime. Just about when you figure there won't be much of a spring, there they are, icy blue as the March wind, they lie against the ground, so tiny that you'll miss them unless you look close and sure. We picked them there on the mountainside I help Grandma until our fingers would get numb in the raw wind. Grandma made a tonic tea from them. She said I was a fast picker, which I was. On the high trail, where the ice still crunched beneath our moccasins, we got evergreen needles. Grandma put them in hot water, and we drank that too. It's better for you than any fruit and makes you feel good. Also, the roots and seeds of skunk cabbage. Once I learned how, I was the best at acorn gathering. At first, I would take each acorn as I found it to Grandma's sack, but she pointed out that I could wait until I got a handful before I run to the sack. It was easy for me being close to the ground, so that I soon was able to get more acorns in the stack than Grandma. She ground them up into a meal that was yellow gold and mixed hickory nuts and walnuts in that in the meal and made bread fritters, fritters, which there has never been anything to taste like. Sometimes she had an accident in the kitchen and spilled sugar in the acorn meal. She would say, darn me, little tree, I spilt sugar in the acorn meal. I never said anything, but when she did, that I always got an extra fritter. Me and Grandpa was both pretty heavy acorn fritter eaters. Then sometime there in late March, after the Indian violets had come, we would be gathering on the mountain, and the wind, raw and mean, would change just for a second. It would touch your face as soft as a feather. It had an earth smell. You knew springtime was on the way. The next day, or the next, you would commence to hold your face out for the feel. The soft touch would come again. It would last a little longer and be sweeter and smell stronger. Ice would break and melt on the high ridges, swelling the ground and running little fingers of water down into the spring branch. Then the yellow dandelions poked up everywhere along the lower hollow and we picked them for greens, which are good when you mix them with fireweed, greens, poke salt, and nettles. Nettles make the best greens, but have little tiny hairs on them that sting you all over when you're picking. Me and Grandpa many times failed to notice a nettle patch, but Grandma would find it and we would pick them. Grandpa said he had never known anything in life that being pleasurable, didn't have a damn catch to it. Somewheres, which is right. Fireweed has a big purple flower on it. It has a long stalk, which you can peel and eat raw, or you can cook it, and it is like asparagus. Mustard comes through on the mountainside in patches that looks like yellow blankets. It grows little bright canary heads with peppery leaves. 
Grandma mixed it in with other greens and sometimes ground the seeds into a paste and made table mustard. Everything growing wild is a hundred times stronger than tame things. We pulled the wild onions from the ground and just a handful would carry more flavor than a bushel of tame onions. As the, warm, as the air warms and the rains come, the mountain flowers pop colors out like paint buckets have been spilled all over the mountainside. Firecracker flowers have long, rounded red blooms that are so bright they look like painted paper. The harebell pushes little bluebells dangling on stems as fine as vines from amongst rocks and crevices. Bitterroot has big lavender pink faces with yellow centers that hug the ground, while moonflowers are hidden deep in the hollow, long-stemmed and swaying like willows with pink-red fringes on the top. Different kinds of seeds are born at different body heats in Manola's womb. When she first begins warming, only the tiniest flowers come through. But as she warms more, bigger flowers are born. And the, stap, and the sap starts running up in the trees, making them swell like a woman at birthing time until they pop open their buds. When the air gets heavy, so it's hard to breathe, you know what's coming. The birds come down from the ridges and hide in the hollows in the pines. Heavy black clouds float over the mountain and you run for the cabin. From the cabin porch, we could watch the big bars of light that stand for a full second, maybe two on the mountaintop, running out feelers or lightning wire in all directions before they're jerked back into the sky, cracking claps of sound. So sharp, you'll know something has split wide open. Then the thunder rolls and rumbers, rumbles over the ridges and back through the hollows. I was pretty near sure a time or two that the mountains was falling down, but Grandpa said they wasn't, which of course they didn't. Then it comes again and rolls blue fireballs off rocks on the top ridge tops and splatters the blue in the air. The trees whip and bend in the sudden rushes of wind and the sweep of heavy rain comes thunking from the clouds in big drops, letting you know there's some real frog-strangling sheets of water coming close behind. Folks who laugh and say that all is known about nature and that nature don't have a soul spirit have never been in a mountain spring storm. When she's birthing spring, she gets right down to it, tearing at the mountains like a birthing woman clawing at the bed quilts. If a tree has been hanging on, having weathered all the winter winds, and she figures it needs cleaning out, she whips it up out of the ground and flings it down the mountain. She never, she goes over the branches of every bush and tree, and after she feels around a little with her wind fingers, then she whips them clean and proper of anything that is weak. If she figures a tree needs removing and won't come down from the wind, she just whams, and all that's left is a torch blazing from a lightning strike. She's alive and painting, 
you'll believe it too. Grandpa said she was, amongst other things, tidying up any afterbirth that might be left over from last year, so her new birthing would be clean and strong. When the storm is over, the new growth, tiny and light, timid green, starts edging out on the bushes and tree limbs. Then nature brings April, rain. It whispers down soft and lonesome, making mist in the hollows and on the trails where you walk under the drippings from hanging branches of trees. It's a good feeling, exciting, but sad too, in April rain. Grandpa said he always got that kind of mixed up feeling. He said it was exciting because something new was being born and it was sad because you knew'd, you knowed you couldn't hold on to it. It'll pass too quick. April wind is soft and warm as a baby's crib. It breathes on the crab apple tree until white blossoms open up, smeared with pink. The smell is sweeter than honeysuckle and brings bees swarming over the blossoms. Mountain laurel with pink white blooms and purple centers grow everywhere, from the hollows to the top of the mountain, alongside of the dog-tooth violet that has long pointed yellow, yellow petals with a white tooth hanging out. They always look to me like tongues. Then, when April gets its warmest, all of a sudden the cold hits. It stays cold for four or five days. This is to make the blackberries bloom and is called blackberry winter. The blackberries will not bloom without it. That's why some years there are no blackberries. When it ends, that's when the dogwoods bloom out like snowballs over the mountainside in places you never suspicioned they grew. In a pine grove or stand of oak, of a sudden there's a big burst of white. The white farmers gathered out of their gardens in late summer, but the Indian gathers from early spring. When the first greens start growing all through the summer and fall, gathering acorns and nuts. Grandpa said the woods would feed you if you lived with the woods instead of tearing them up. However, there's a right smart bit of work to it. I figured it was more than likely best at I figured I was more than likely best at berry picking, for I could get in the middle of a berry patch and never have to bend down to reach the berries. I never got much tired of picking berries. There were dewberries, blackberries, elderberries, which Grandpa said makes the best wine, huckleberries, and the red bearberries, which I could never find had any taste to them, but Grandma used them in cooking. I always brought back more red bearberries in my bucket as they were not good to eat, and I ate berries fairly regular when I was picking them. Grandpa did too, but he said it wasn't like he was wasting them because he would eventually eat them anyways, which was right. Polk salt berries, however, are poison, and they will knock you deader than last year's corn stalk. Any berries you see the birds don't eat, you had better not eat. 
During berry picking time, my teeth, tongue, and mouth was pretty continual deep blue color. When me and Grandpa delivered our wares, some flatlanders around the crossroads store remarked that I was sick. Occasionally, a new flatlander would get worked up about it when he saw me. Grandpa said they showed their ignorance of what a berry picker had to put up with, and I wasn't to pay any attention to them, which I didn't. The birds had a trick about wild cherries. Along about July, the sun would have been on the cherries just enough. Sometimes in the lazy sun of summer, after dinner time, when Grandma would be napping, me and Grandpa would be sitting on the back door stoop. Grandpa would say, let's go up the trail and see what we can find. Up the trail we would go and sit down in the shade of a cherry tree with our backs to the trunk. We would watch the birds. One time we watched a thrush turn flips on a limb and wobble out to the end like he was walking a tightrope. And then he walked plumb off the end. A robin got to feeling so good that he wobbled right up to me and Grandpa and lit on Grandpa's knee. He fussed at Grandpa, and I told him what he thought about the whole thing. He eventually decided he was singing, but his voice squeaked, and he gave it up. He staggered off into the brush, with me and Grandpa practically laughing ourselves sick. Grandpa said he laughed so hard it hurt his gizzard, which it did mine too. We saw a red cardinal eat so many cherries that he keeled over and passed out on the ground. We put him in the crotch of a tree so he wouldn't get killed by something during the night. Early the next morning, me and Grandpa went back to the tree and there he was still sleeping. Grandpa punched him awake and he got up feeling mean. He flew down at Grandpa's head a time or two and Grandpa had to slap at him with his hat to make him go on. He flew down to the spring branch and stuck his head in the water and taken it out and puffed and spewed and looked around like he was personally going to whip the first thing he saw. Grandpa said he believed the old cardinal held me and him personally responsible for his condition, though Grandpa said he ought to know better. Grandpa said he had seen him before. He was an old-time cherry eater. Every bird that comes around your cabin in the mountains is a sign of something. That's what the mountain folk believe. And if you want to believe, you can, for it's so. I believed, so did Grandpa. Grandpa knew all the bird signs. It was good luck to have a house wren live in your cabin. Grandma had a little square cut out of the top corner in the kitchen door, and our house wren flew in and out, building her nest on the eave log over the kitchen stove. She nestled there, and her mate would come and feed her. House wrens like to be around people who love birds. She would cozy down in her nest and watch us in the kitchen with little black bead eyes that shined in the lamplight. When I would drag a chair close and stand on it, I could get a better look. She would fuss at me, but she wouldn't leave her nest. Grandpa said that she loved to fuss at me. It proved to her that she was more than likely more important in the family than I was. Whippoorwills started singing at dusk. They got their name from their call, for that is what they say. Whippoorwill, whippoorwill, over and over. 
If you light the lamp, they will move closer and closer to the cabin and will eventually send you to sleep. They are a sign of night peace and good dreams, Grandpa said. The screech owl hollers at night and is a complainer. There's only one way to shut up a screech owl. You lay a broom across the open kitchen door. Grandma done this, and I've never seen it fail. The screech owl will always stop complaining. The jory only sings in the day. He's called jory because that is all he ever sings. Jory, jory, over and over. But if he comes close to the cabin, he is a certain sign that you will not get sick at all for the entire summer. The blue jay playing around the cabin means you're going to have plenty of good times and fun. The blue jay is a clown and bounces on the ends of branches and turns flips and teases other birds. The red cardinal means you are going to get some money. And the turtle tub don't mean to. Mountain folk, what they mean to a sharecropper. The red cardinal means you are going to get some money, and the turtle dove don't mean to mountain folk what they mean to a sharecropper. When you hear a turtle dove, it means that somebody loves you and has sent the turtle dove to tell you. The morning dove calls late at night and never comes close. He calls from far back in the mountain, and it's a long, lonesome call that sounds like he is mourning. Grandpa said he is. He said, if a feller died and didn't have anybody in the whole world to remember him and cry for him, the mourning dove would remember and mourn. Grandpa said if you died somewhere as far off, even across the great waters, that if you was a mountain man, you would know you would be remembered by the mourning dove. He said it lent a matter of peace to a feller's mind, knowing that, which I know it did for my mind. Grandpa said if you recollected somebody you loved who had passed on, then the mourning dove would not have to mourn him. You would know then that he was mourning for somebody else, and they didn't sound might near as lonesome. When I heard him late at night while I laid in my bedstead, I would remember Ma. Then I wasn't as lonesome. Birds, just like everything else, know if you're like them. Or if you do, then they will come all around you. Our mountains and hollers are filled with birds, mockingbirds, and flickers, red-winged blackbirds, and Indian hens. Meadow larks and chipwills, robins and bluebirds, hummingbirds and martins, so many that there is no way to tell of them all. We stopped trapping in the spring and summer. Grandpa said that there was no way in the world that a feller could mate and fight at the same time. He said animals couldn't either. Grandpa said even if they could mate, and you hunting them, they could not raise their young, and so you would eventually starve to death. We've 
taken pretty heavy to fishing in the spring and summer. The Indian never fishes or hunts for sport, only for food. Grandpa said it was the silliest damn thing in the world to go around killing something for sport. He said the whole thing more than likely was thought up by politician between wars when they wasn't getting people killed so they could keep their hand in on the killing. Grandpa said that the idiots taking it up without a lick of thinking at it. But if you could check it out, politicians started it, which is likely. We made fish baskets out of willows. We wove the willows together and made fish baskets maybe three foot long. At the mouth of the basket, we turned the willow ends down and sharpened them into points. This way the fish could swim into the basket and the little ones could swim back out, but the big fish couldn't come out through the sharp points. Grandma baited the baskets with meal balls. Sometimes we baited them with fiddle worms. You get fiddle worms by driving a stob in the ground and rubbing or fiddling a board across the top of the stob. The fiddler worms come out the top of the ground. We toted the baskets up the narrows to the creek. There we tied them with a line to the tree and lowered them into the water. The next day we would come back and get our fish. There would be big catfish and bass in the basket, sometimes a brim, brim, and once I caught a trout in my basket. Sometimes we caught turtles in the basket. They're good when, when cooked with mustard greens. I like to pull up the baskets. Grandpa taught me to hand fish. This was how the second time in my five years of living, I nearly got killed. The first time, of course, was working in the whiskey trade when the tax law might near caught me. I was more than certain sure they would have taken me to the settlement and hanged me. Grandpa said more than likely they would have, would, wouldn't have as he had never known such a case to happen. But Grandpa didn't see them. They wasn't chasing him. This time, however, Grandpa nearly got killed too. It was in the middle of the day, which is the best time to hand fish. The sun hits the middle of the creek and the fish move back under the banks to lie in the cool and doze. This is when you lay down on the creek bank and ease your hand into the water and feel for the fish holes. When you find one, you bring your hand in, hands in easy and slow till you feel the fish. If you are patient, you can rub your hands along the sides of the fish and he will lie in the water while you rub him. Then you take one hole behind his head, the other on his tail, and lift him out of the water. It takes some time to learn. This day, Grandpa was laying on the bank and had already pulled a catfish out of the water. I couldn't find a fish hole, so I went a ways down the bank. I laid down and eased my hands into the water, feeling for a fish hole. I heard a sound right by me. It was a dry rustle that started slow and got faster until it made a whirling, whirring, whirring noise. I turned my head towards the sound, and it was a rattlesnake. He was coiled to strike his head in the air and looking down on me, not six inches from my face. I froze stiff and couldn't move. 
He was bigger around than my leg, and I could see ripples moving under his dry skin. He was mad. Me and the snake stared at each other. He was flicking out his tongue nearly in my face, and his eyes was slitted red and mean. <clears throat> the end of his tail began to flutter faster and faster, making the whirling sound get higher. Then his, <clears throat> then his head, shaped like a big V, began to weave just a little back and forth, for he was deciding what part of my face to hit. I knew he was about to strike me, but I couldn't move. A shadow fell on the ground over me in the snake. I hadn't heard him coming at all, but I knew it was Grandpa. Soft and easy, like he was remarking about the weather, Grandpa said, Don't turn your head. Don't move, little tree. Don't blink your eyes, which I didn't. The snake raised his head higher, getting ready to hit me, 